I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Pray. Why do you want to hunt? Because you all think that I can't. I saw a sign in the sky. I'm ready. Muy nita. There's something out there. I'm coming with you. You can't. I'm trying to protect you. Protect me from what? It's time. It knows how to hunt. I know how to survive. With us for this one is Name Chaibiti, whom you may remember from our shows on Mario Kart, Speed Racer, and In the Heights. Hello, Name. Hey, everybody. And I believe this is the first time that we, this show, have returned to talking about the Predator series on the main feed since we covered the Alien vs. Predator duology in 2012. Those disappointing, though in some places entertaining, grudge matches followed the 1987 original and then Predator 2 in 1990. The third most recent movie in the series was Predators, directed by Nimrod Antal and produced by Robert Rodriguez. It was intended to be the aliens to the original alien of Predator 1, expanding and evolving the world and storytelling around the creatures and their culture. That was 2010, 13 years before this recording. It sits at 65% critical freshness and cost a modest $40 million and made $127 million. That was one of the first new movies that we talked about on my solo show, Digital Gonzo, in 2011. Eight whole years later, after not really knowing what to do with the franchise, Fox gave it to Shane Black, director of Iron Man 3 and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, a writer of Lethal Weapon and Last Action Hero, and one of the stars of the 1987 original Predator. He played Hawkins, the one who kept making gross jokes about the enormity of his girlfriend's vagina. He and his longtime Monster Squad buddy Fred Decker wrote The Predator, in which the alien hunters are revealed to be very interested in autistic people because they are an evolutionary leap for their species. Though all that fascinating premise results in due to studio meddling is a fairly run-of-the-mill, albeit gruey, lazily misogynistic movie where a kid gets kidnapped by a monster for his autism juice. And then the surviving heroes open a pod and a Predator Iron Man suit comes out. Credits. Cost $88 million, made $160 million, Disney bought all of Fox's properties, no sequel for you. Rad Dad on our Discord was talking about Disney's boardroom execs meddling with the unexceptional Ant-Man 3 Quantumania to change its ending, and I swear to God, I read that as boredom executives. However, Disney 
and their board of executives were not just going to leave predator money on the table. And prior to the pandemic, they agreed to let Dan Trachtenberg, the man behind 10 Cloverfield Lane, direct Prey, a cunningly refocused period piece set in 1719 around the Great Plains, which comprise, among other places, eastern Montana and Wyoming, as well as the Dakotas, where a predator touches down to hunt right in the middle of Comanche territory. Filming was disrupted and delayed by COVID, but even though this was eventually released in August 22, well over a year after the first movies like Black Widow, F9 The Fast Saga, and In The Heights saw audiences returning to cinemas in summer of 2021, it cost $65 million but was only launched to streaming. Hulu in the USA, Stars slash Disney Plus in the UK, very, very limited cinema release, I believe, on a few screens. And it was one of the best films of that year. Bear in mind what Disney think was definitely worth funding and releasing in theatres in 2022 includes Lightyear, Strange World, Thor Love and Thunder, you know, the real crowd pleasers. This, like so much of the content they foolishly overspent on, was released in a format that the general public can considers to be devalued, small potatoes, barely worthy of their attention. And it's maybe the best Predator movie, so we are going to talk you folks through it, and Name being of Native American extraction will hopefully be able to fill Sharon and I in on things we may have missed the significance of. This is a deceptively simple premise. The Comanche Nation hunters find themselves hideously outmatched by this ultra-violent extraterrestrial. I'm not just of Native American descent, I'm of Comanche descent. So, like, this is my tribe featured in the movie. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for coming on, seriously. Yeah. The only one who seems to keep surviving is Naru, played by the astonishing relative newcomer Amber Midthunder, whose real-life father is of Assiniboine, Nagoya, First Nation descent, and whose mother is of Thai and Chinese extraction. She plays a teenage girl who wants to hunt, but is always being told to go home. So... The first question I've got that has multiple things stacked up because it's most of the movie spent uh, illustrating this, who is Naru? What do we learn about her through observing her? I would say that Naru is a very ambitious problem solver. She wants to be a hunter and she is trying to go on this rite of passage where she has to hunt something dangerous you know something that's also hunting you Mm. and we see her throughout the movie innovate on what would be setbacks for her so i mean one example is uh her throwing axe that she has she's got this problem of i can throw the axe i've got a good aim with it but I then have to run all the way back to get it to have another shot. So there's a scene where she's like, let's uh, attach a rope. And then that way I can just yank it back and then it can come right back to my hand. And now I'm not gonna be immediately good at this. Let's take some time to practice with that yank so that I can reliably get it back to my hand every single time I need uh, to use it. So, yeah, I, I would say that she's she, she takes things like disadvantages and works with them to make them 
advantageous to her. One of the things I noticed about her, and this is all demonstrated in her actions in the first third of the film, is that there's a there's a strong theme throughout the film of being underestimated and the advantage that that actually nets you. And part of what I think Naru is able to do with that is it's not just about her being underestimated by her uh, by her family and by her her friends. It's she underestimates herself as a result. But because of that, she doesn't take anything for granted. She doesn't walk into a situation assuming that she can do what she's always done and walk out of it alive. And although she has this, like you say, Name, she has this ambition. She's she's really driven to hunt by the fact that everybody else thinks she can't do it. She doesn't scorn the abilities that they do afford her. So gathering is one of her main skills. And you can see her expressing this in, like, she's really good at tracking. She's got a fantastic eye for her surroundings. She does not miss a thing. Hoof prints, scraped bark, all the things that tell her there's something around here that's going to be a danger to you, she sees. And she she's always on the lookout for things like stuff that she could, you know, plants and things that she can use as medicines, something in her environment that might be useful later. She picks up things she doesn't recognise, like the trap, like the uh, device that the predator drops, and it goes in her bag. Everything goes in her bag, not necessarily because she knows what it's for right now, but because she can see the potential usefulness in it, something that she can use for later. And even right back at the beginning when uh, she and her brother are trying to shoot the bird she doesn't act in time and her brother ends up shooting it but she comes back with the fish the bird was carrying so she does not miss anything that gets dropped by other people it's not just the fish that uh, it was carrying she says to him that uh, she was waiting for it to return Mm. so that it would drop at their feet now he has to run across the river and get his bowstring wet Mm. but the point being that he missed the fish yeah she picks up what others ignore and overlook yeah because she herself is ignored And and overlooked the remit of this film is Her being underestimated at every turn is her superpower. Uh, A major theme that I picked on um, throughout the movie is uh, she is a motherly figure Mm. um, that uh, speaks with her and they're complimenting uh, the dog, Sari. Her name um, is uh, Aruka. Thank you. <laughs> You're right. uh, so Aruka is is complimenting, and then um, Naru responds, "Well, it's a smart dog." And Aruka gives back in English. Um, Not every smart creature can be trained, but I believe in Comanche the direct translation is "Not every smart creature can learn." Ah. And. This is what sets Naru apart from other characters, uh, human or alien, in the movie. Is that she takes the time to learn. She, you know, she's using every every uh, thing that she's picked up. She's very observant, even in a way that the predator itself does not engage. She uses 
pieces of you know, the predator to conquer it. And it's because of that willingness to learn with the pieces put in front of you that she is um, victorious in the end. It's worth saying at this point that Amber Midthunder has a fan fantastic physical presence in this movie she has incredibly expressive eyes and she moves with such purpose she's just got this like athleticism so it's it's almost preposterous when the guys around her swagger about going what are you here for we don't need a cook they have to represent that level of of overlooking her which kind of shocked uh, willow because there's so much there's so much preponderance of the trope of the noble savage in Hollywood that the assumption is that every culture that's not white has everything just fine and that everything's really balanced. There's another film that is of uh, First Nation origin called Blood Quantum. It was released in 2019 on Shudder on Amazon and Jeff Barnaby, the director, aged 46, died not long ago and not long after this was released. It's really good. Uh, it's, it's, it's set in Canada and uh, it's after a zombie outbreak, but the, uh, the, the tribe or nation that are uh, survivors kind of have, have gone back to their roots a little and they're like, you know, we've we coped with shit like this before, which is kind of exactly how I positioned uh, various Native American nations in New Century. It's like, okay, so we've managed to adapt a lot better to the Wendigo. By the way, it's not a Wendigo, that's our word, than Europeans who all freaked out and uh, ate themselves. But uh, yeah, Blood Quantum absolutely does not sugarcoat the fact that there are also problems and social issues that exist within uh, native communities as well. It's not that everyone knows what's going on at this, but they're all secretly in touch with the earth. It doesn't have that patronizing Hollywood thing going on. And uh, I, I really want to see more films by starring, painstakingly consulted with, produced and preferably directed by, you know, just Dan Trachtenberg can do other things, native creators. After this comes The Lion Hunt, and it's a, it's a key. Throughout the film, she's gathering little clues, little bits that will all finally contribute to this Rube Goldberg mousetrap she gets set up for the Predator at the end. She doesn't know she's learning it, but it's all like she needs everything. And this one's a, a key one. Rather than hunting the lion, they bait a trap and allow the lion to think that it is hunting them. And that's how she manages to get, uh, get the jump on the Predator at the end. Um, what ultimately happens is that uh, the, the, the lion jumps her in the tree. She almost kills it. Eventually, her brother manages to finish it off and takes seemingly all the credit for it, uh, despite the fact that she <laughs> did the lion's share of the setting of the traps. And also, uh, did, did the, um, uh, the wounded uh, hunter survive as a result of her herbal knowledge uh the the fact that she's able to keep him alive so that they can get him back to the camp yeah. yes and uh it's the fact do, do you know the name of the orange flower she uses i just saw it earlier and i forgot <laughs> i i wrote down something like orange tetsuyu 
but it's that sounds familiar. It's something that cools the blood, and everyone else is like, "What?" Yeah, he's suddenly really cold, and she says, "Do you want?" No, it slows his heart because it's cooling his body down, so he won't bleed out. Do you want him to be comfortable, or do you want him to be alive? I think it's the combination of the orange flower, which whether it is of the same family or not, I don't mm. know, but it looks like marigold, which right. you would use marigold petals for, um, like an antiseptic wash Got for it. wounds and things like that. But it's the combination of that and a particular uh, fungus. A fungus, yeah, she found it on the tree. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Well well noted. She does the uh, same thing, I believe, at the end by cooling her body down so that the predator can't see her, rather than just repeating the mud from the original predator, which this was the first time you'd seen predator, wasn't it, uh, Nami? Yes, it was. I, um, growing up, was kind of averse to, like, uh, jump scare, violent um kind of movies mm. and so like things like alien things like predator i was just like eh, eh maybe maybe some other time uh i was obviously very excited about this movie coming out and i was like well let's watch it and it, it was a great time really really liked it and then in preparation for this i went back to watch the first predator for the first time mm-hmm. and i had no idea <laughs> that it was kind of like let's enjoy this violence uh, as opposed to like really tense mm. like uh, here comes the jump scare kind of a movie yeah so well, it starts yeah. off uh, as as a uh, like an 80s muscle action movie um, mm-hmm. and then it subverts that by by going oh actually no this is more like Friday the 13th but in the jungle and the uh, and Jason is a big game hunter and is wildly over equipped with tech uh, and so you see all these dudes who would be uh, the the Schwarzenegger, Van Damme, uh, Dolph Lundgren type in their own uh, movies suddenly starting to really panic and get torn apart by this thing. And then the whole last act, which is my favorite part of the film, is almost entirely wordless. And it's mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger going back to primal roots. And if somebody had told me when I watched uh, uh, that... What if there was an entire movie that was just that? I'd be like, where is it? Give me it now. Like, Prey is the <laughs> film I have been waiting for. It's also the, one of the first Predator films that doesn't try to riff on that incredibly iconic Alan Silvestri score. That... Predator 2, they got Silvestri back. Predators, they are riffing on that to the point where they literally play that and Long Tall Sally at some point. I can't remember if the Alien vs. Predator ones do it much. I think there's a bit of that when the uh, the, the three touch down and they're first like, it's like, yeah, Predators! This, and I know there's definitely some of that in The Predator. So this was the first one that isn't macho. And in fact, it's kind of, well, it goes back to the fact that the original was macho, but only to the point where suddenly macho doesn't actually save you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the 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 swagger of uh, 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 Schwarzenegger Dutch and his uh, his crew is kind of replicated in the other hunters here. They come a cropper to the predator. While we're talking about um, the first movie, I will say that I think that this movie Prey is an inversion of that first film. Mm-hmm. We're gonna talk about uh, the French in a minute, but they are kind of like the white warriors that come into this land Mm -hmm. that they're unfamiliar with and then they capture uh, a girl who doesn't speak their language but one Mm -hmm. of them can communicate with her but that gets inverted because 
you know, in that first movie, they almost all die, but they eventually win out. Um, Anna gets to the chopper and thus Mm -hmm. takes no part in further proceedings. That doesn't happen this time. It's all her. And that is, I, I can't help but think that that's a conscious thing that they're aware of yeah I, I mean I would say I mentioned this to Willow there is a, a repeating motif a thread, in Predator yeah. films uh, not all of them um, but in several of them where the person who knows what the Predator really is either through past knowledge or through their own observations is a young woman yeah there was actually a piece that was uh, deleted from the script and I'm not even sure how they could do this and I feel like it would actually kind of pollute this film a little. There's a nod to Predator 2, filling a, like it's an Easter egg that fills in a question asked back in 1990, where did that pistol come from? Here. But in a way that's way more satisfying than just, where did Han Solo's pistol come from? Uh, I guess Woody Harrelson just gave him it. Like, this is a, a plot bearing pistol that actually does prove extremely useful and that she makes uh, it's it's part of the big Rube Goldberg trap and she has to learn to use it which requires communication skills to be told how to fill it by the Frenchman mm-hmm. uh, but also apparently her brother Tabe is reincarnated as Billy in Predator Billy you know something what is it I'm scared, Pancho. Bullshit. You ain't afraid of no man. There's something out there waiting for us. And it ain't no man. We're all gonna die. Okay. <sighs> that was in the script. Thank you for taking it out. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. It, it feels like that would be a that just raises further questions. Yeah. Situation. <laughs> I feel like some like a fan of the first movie, like super is like, hey, there's a Native American in the first one and a Native American in this one. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway. Um, there's also a doggo in this film, and the doggo is constantly in danger. I think. One of the the questions I've asked is the strange double bind of a Predator sequel. How do you expand on such a simple and appealing, mysterious presence? And indeed, should you? Will that make for a better story? Because once the original Predator happens, Predator 2 was just kind of retreading that ground in a different setting, but with uh, like some interference from Gary Busey, and it's set in a city with a lot more shitty humour, and it's... It's not a great movie to watch, but uh, the question has been since 1987, how do we do this in a way that feels fresh, justified, and is there any real mileage to the Predator? This, of course, also applies to the Alien, which, uh, you know, definitely I found myself asking that while watching uh, Rotten Red's Alien uh, Covenant, that, that most recent one, just this dismal, like, this is what the Alien has been reduced to now. As Prey turned out, I was so excited to see it actually be tense. Because while you're fairly certain she's going to survive the whole thing, there's a lot of other characters around that you're thinking, could they survive? I really hope they do. There's more at stake here than survival. There's knowledge to be learned here. It's fascinating to watch. It's fascinating to watch someone who is fascinated by watching things. 
<laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, I, I get it. I'm glad that you're bringing this up because that's exactly what I wrote down about the dog. Hmm. Because you're, you're well, watching you're to kill it, and you're, just you're like, oh, please don't let anything happen to the dog. Yeah. Because the dog is almost always by her side. Hmm. There's the yeah the the real tension because of tiny stakes. Like we would the, love the dog is the first see... thing to die in a slasher movie. Exactly. We would love to see this dog make it through, and every single time it does, we're like. There's still 50 minutes left in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that. I love the idea of just taking away the whole, is the world going to be destroyed by these alien invaders? No. Uh, but is the dog going to die? It might. It might. Mm, yeah. I think yeah. one of the one of the reasons that I really love how uh, the dog is positioned as Naru's constant companion is that it's an extension of her. Mm. A dog... In, in sort of mythological and uh, metaphorical terms, often represents instinct and adaptability and the, the capability to observe and respond to your environment. And that's an externalization of all of those qualities that Naru has. But the dog doesn't have her hang-ups, doesn't have her neuroses, and so is able to act when she can't and uh, provide her with assistance when nobody else will because they don't have that particular faith in her. The dog has total faith in her, total loyalty. You want me to do something? Yes, mistress, I will. Dog's name is Sari and uh, she's played by a dog named Coco, one of the best actors that we have saw in 2022. Coco apparently <laughs> is not or was not an acting trained dog. Hmm. They needed a dog wow. that had the ability to do the uh, the dog-like stuff mm. more than they needed them to be trained as on an point, on-screen yeah. dog. Wow. So the, the there were a lot of situations where it was like, okay, we need Sari to be in this particular location for this to work. Can you do that, Sari? Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> and they ended up, uh, she was initially only in a handful of scenes, but because she made every scene she was in better, they just kept writing more and more and more that she participated in, and then really hoping that she could do the thing they needed her to do. <laughs> it is the uh, Comanche word for dog, by the way. Sorry. So, yeah. Oh, ah, nice. So the dog's name is Dog. <laughs> That's yes, awesome. that's correct. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that's really great. But but the, the, the again, this whole thing about Naru having this wide open toolbox of things that she can use. Her relationship with Sari is one of the tools that she has. Um, everything that she she all of her own skills are other tools that she has, and she is constantly. Uh, sort of diminished by people who have one tool who have the hammer and everything looks like a nail yeah mm. uh, another thing that I noted actually on some small level the film Prey being released on streaming is kind of perfect because it's underestimated by Disney mm -hmm. but also in doing that it didn't end up in cinemas so the uh, performatively angry boys didn't make a bitch fest about the predator being stolen by women and affirmative action and uh, you know racial cast race bending casting. This is Schwarzenegger's movie. It belongs to the Teutonic people. So it slid right under their notice yeah. and then headbutted a bullet back into their face. Oh yeah. 
love it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the uh, it's it creeps up on you, which is a good thing. But also because it's on Disney Plus, it's really easy to recommend to people and just you know you could go check this out. It is a brisk hundred minutes, just races by. Uh, speaking of the version on Disney Plus, I will keep this very short. There is in the extras section a version in the Comanche language. It is a dub, it was ADR'd. As I understand it, all the actors performed their own lines. I believe so, yeah. I would just um, mention, by the way, if anybody is interested in finding out more about that process mm. and what they were originally intending to do with it and couldn't... Was it that uh, they were trying to do the Hunt for Red October style, speaking in Russian and then slowly going into English? Um, no, I think they'd intended originally to do a full version the whole in, thing. in Comanche. Right. Yeah. But, practicalities meant that right. it ended up not happening that way but okay. there's a podcast called the tongue unbroken uh, which is about language revitalization and decolonization and they have an episode on prey with the writer and the comanche nations director of language planning uh catherine Pavena Kit Briner and uh, they talk about sort of what they what they were looking at and how they went about doing it and it's absolutely fascinating. If anyone's interested that in great. that, find that it's excellent. You can also go ahead and like the Comanche Nation language on Facebook. They're very organized. They do a lot of um, a, a lot of work um, promoting uh, different words of the day and, and stuff like that. So that's something that you can look into as well. But like I said, it's it's in the extras section. You have to kind of deliberately navigate to that tab and pretty much know it's there already. It is not a selectable language on the main film. It's considered kind of a, a bonus. Mm -hmm. And when you then click on English subtitles to be able to understand what's being said, it is closed captions, which is very different to subtitles. Subtitles is everything people are saying. Closed captions are every sound you can hear as well. So that includes encroaching footsteps, dogs barking, something growling. When you can't hear, that might be quite helpful. Although I did notice that at one point where it's like, oh my God, what's going to happen? It says French people talking way before <laughs> you actually see them, thus diffusing the tension for anybody who's deaf, but also anybody who's listening to the Comanche version and doesn't speak Comanche and thus has the subtitles on. I'd imagine a lot of folks who do speak Comanche will, will still have the subtitles on just to make absolutely sure. Yeah. These the, are... the other issue with um, closed caption uh, subtitles is that they will often have to abbreviate yeah. their translation. Truncate the meaning. Because they've got to fit the sound effect um, markers around mm -hmm. them um, or, you know, the keeping up to speed. And, and often the translation will not be as nuanced mm. as one that is focused purely on the, the subtitles. There's also a horrible black highlighted bar behind them which breaks the frame and actually interferes with the, the, the filmmaking. That bothers the hell out of me. I had to make the ultimate version of Prey. It required acquiring the 4K version Ripping that with the subtitles, because that does have decent subtitles, but it doesn't have the Comanche audio track. And then ripping the Comanche audio track and overlaying it to that version to make a, f a kind of a, a hybrid, which only we can see. It doesn't exist anywhere else. They could put it on Disney+, Plus, same as they could put a version of The Empire Strikes Back that's not shot in grayscale. But they don't. That drives me 
crazier than a bastard on Father's Day. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of fathers, actually, Name's father did a little storytelling session on YouTube about the monster that this thing, the predator, gets referred to as. Something which is so obscure, it didn't even really have that much of a, an internet footprint until the film Prey came along, when people were asking, what is this thing? So... The Comanches didn't tell a lot of stories. They were very work-focused, very... Um, Non-fiction section. Yes, I would say so. <laughs> but A lot of self-help. They did have something that they would tell kids to keep them in line, right? To say, oh, wait, the Moopits is going to get you. The uh, Moopits, M-U-P-I-T-S-L, which is silent. Correct. This is that story. You know what, folks? For this one, we're going to need two Chibitis, Name and his father. A lot of people ask me where I get my stories from. And my stock answer is that I got them from people and places that I've met throughout the years. A lot of uh, Indians, whenever they tell stories, say I got this from my great-grandfather or something like that. But I never really had that luxury. The only one who ever told me a story was my grandmother, Noreen Chibity. She told me a Comanche story about a, uh, I guess you'd call it a monster story. The monster's name is Moopeets. Long time ago, Whenever the Comanches were free and wandered the prairies, these kids were out playing, and their grandfather came out and told them, Now you kids, don't go out too far. If you lose sight of us, then the Mootbeats will get you. And they said, Okay, grandfather, we won't, we won't, we'll play nearby. And so they play and they play, and then they get a little farther and a little farther, and without even realizing it, they can't see the camp anymore. Always stay inside of the teepees. Don't go wandering off, because if you do, there's a Moopeets out there who will gobble you up. Until finally, one of the kids remembered and he looked around and he didn't see the home teepees. didn't see anybody. He said, hey, we need to run back to the village. And they go and it turns out they're going in the wrong direction. And the further and further, they try to find their home the further they get away. They ran another direction. They just kept getting farther and farther from the village and they just kept getting more lost and more lost. And then one of the kids started to cry. And now about that time, they were near the lair of Moopeets. And he starts to smell them and says, all right, I was wondering what I would have for dinner. <laughs> And he leaps over to them. He, this Moopeets uh, is an incredible jumper. And they're astonishing jumpers. He lands in front of them and he says, Hey, you kids, I'm going to eat you up now. I'm going to eat you guys up right now. Oh, no, 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 said one of the kids. You can't eat us. We're so dirty from playing in the dirt all day. You should let us go wash yourself over in that stream. And then he takes a sniff of them and he goes, Oh, no, don't do that. Yes, go over there in that creek and clean up. And so they go there and they're washing themselves and they are trying to figure out a way to, to escape. And so they snuck off, made noises like they were uh, still washing themselves, but they kept getting farther and farther. And Moopeets looked up and he saw what was happening and so he took off after them. All right, you kids, I'm gonna eat you up whenever I catch you. 
So he chased them down, and then he cornered them by this big rock in a pond. Don't try to run away again! And whenever he roared, he scared one of the little ones so bad he went nodding on himself. And so his brothers say, no, no, Mookbeats, you can't eat us now. Our youngest has soiled himself. That would that would just not do. This little one went queaked up. You've got to let us go wash him off. You don't want to eat no dirty kid, no messy dirty kid. And so Mookbeats took a whiff of the boy. Oh, go wash him off in that pond. So they went down to the pond. And then uh, one of the kids said, you know, I don't think this Moopeats can swim. Let's swim across the pond and run away so he can't catch us and eat us. And so they clean off their youngest and then they swim and swim and swim and they get to the other side and Moopeats sees that he's been tricked again. You tricked me again, that's the last time. And Moopeats jumped. He jumped so high that he jumped over the pond and he was off chasing those kids again. Well, whenever Moopeats landed, he uh, landed so hard that he woke up this little magical being who's a friend to little Comanche kids. His name is Ekakuda. And so Ekakuda looked out and he saw Moopeach chasing those kids. So quick as a wink, he ran down there and he ran to the nearest kid and said, quick, quick, jump on my back and I'll take you to safety. And they do so and he's able to leap as well. And he leaps all the way back to the camp and delivers them back. And then Ekakuda leaps all the way back to Mootbeats. And he says, you've messed with them for the last time, Mootbeats. Now we're going to clash. So Mootbeats charged at Ekakuda. Ekakuda, he said, that's the last time you're gonna steal a meal from me. And they run together and they impact and Ekakuda is so strong overpowering Mootbeats. When they hit, Ekakuda threw Mootbeats so high into the sky that he throws him up all the way with the moon. Landed on the moon. This is some and Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <laughs> so that is why when you look up at the moon at night, you see the dark spots because those are the patches of dust that Mootbeats has kicked up in his anger. Nice. Oh, but that's awesome. Mootbeats did find a way down from that moon. And he's still out there looking for little kids who don't listen to their elders. And that's a story my grandma told me. So, behave. Okay. So we want kids who have wandered, but do wash. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, wait, wait, no, this is like Roald Dahl's The Witches. Yeah. If you are smelly, the Mopeats won't, won't eat, eat you. you. Great idea. So, okay, so the storyteller of that particular group was the one that all the parents came to and said, right, my kids aren't washing anymore because of that Mopeats thing you told them. <laughs> Right, okay. But they're, they're but they're in your teepee, aren't they? Yes, you can find them. Yeah, we can definitely find them. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so they do mention uh, the Moot Beats by name mm, in, the in this movie. Yeah. Um, if you are listening in Comanche, they say monster, and that's Moot Beats. Mm-hmm. And then halfway through the movie, um, she tells the tribe, I think it was the Moot Beats. And I got to tell you, as someone who grew up with this story being told to me, it was it was just wild 
because, you know, I've never heard this talked about online. If you Google it, there's only results for it from last August when the movie came out in 22. So it was very, very neat to see this legend that I had grown up with as a Comanche-specific story that my great-grandmother passed down to my father. That, that was just really, really neat. Thank you so much, Nami. Seriously, that's fantastic. Okay, so my question, which actually seems quite churlish now after all of this wonderful heritage, is what's different about this predator relative to all the other predators in the crappy sequels? Um, okay, I suppose this does relate to something that um, Bob Chipman uh, did a piece on, which is could we please stop trying to make out that the predator is this honourable, noble hunter? Like He is a nasty, twatty, weekend dentist. He cheats. He's ridiculous donkulously overpowered every single time like he overcompensates wildly like he'll take you on in almost every case i mean especially that that last one he was like right you've you've led me a merry dance schwarzenegger but you and i are going to fight and it's very much a kind of like right i'm gonna take off the mask and like this is my i'm gonna prove myself because he's been hiding behind a sniper rifle the whole time effectively like he's just been that guy who one shots you in call of duty (laughs) the whole time um, and I think it's that uh, comics conflated the Predators with, or the Yehutje, I believe they're referred to in, in the Expanded Universe, um, with Klingons and various other kind of like based on the Japanese samurai warrior cultures. Warrior cultures. Like someone who wouldn't just stab you in the back and someone who would have a bit of honour. It's not really so much honour as... Uh, well, Will pointed out, it's boring if you just shoot someone who's unarmed. It's like shooting fish in a barrel with a laser gun. Uh, but there there are some differences to this particular, what is referred to as the feral predator, the, relative to the others. I'm assuming you've only ever seen the first one, Nami? Yeah. And only recently. Okay. Well, I can tell you that the, the first one is the one that hides behind the sniper rifle, as you've seen. The second one is really horny for violence like he he specifically goes towards gang warfare during a heat wave and just gravitates towards uh, the the, the gun toting screaming maniacs because to him you know it's all it's all fair play if everyone's got guns mm. like he I was going to say that the specifically about predator 2 it would be a little bit too easy to think he's got some kind of moral code and he's going mm. after these guys because they're bad guys. Mm. No, they're just armed to the teeth yeah. and constantly fighting with each other and that draws his attention. He's killing the gangs, he's killing the cops, it's all just a nightmare. And the fact that this was very circa the LA riots makes it a, a tricky film to watch. Mm. Um, yeah. If you're thinking too much. It's also what I think of whenever anybody in a, in a violent franchise movie says urban pacification. Yeah. <laughs> Although it is noteworthy that uh, one of the cops is a pregnant mother. Uh, I believe it's Alva from um, Vampire's Kiss. Oh, wow. Am I getting through to you, Alva? Maria Conchita Alonso. Uh, and uh, he leaves her alive uh, with the Even though the she's kid. armed. Even though she is armed. So he does have some scruples. But this is just after that train scene, which I lamented back in 2011, where the Predator just sort of walks towards people firing guns at it whilst invisible and the bullets just sort of pass through it and it's like it's not invincible it does intangible yeah all of those video games where you get to play the predator if the marines shoot you they shoot you they've got to balance it somehow then uh, in alien versus predator you've got three young and inexperienced teenage meatheads one of them slightly more self-aware than the other two so he doesn't get punked as easily but they all get punked 
and they're all trying to prove themselves by hunting the serpents who are the xenomorphs. In Alien vs Predator Requiem we've got Mr Wolf, who, or the Wolf Predator, who is a professional sent to clean up a mess. He's Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction. Uh, he's also utterly merciless and thorough. He's not there for sport or anything. He's just there because it's like, okay, so some amateurs went, it was amateur hour on Earth again. I've got to go down and deal with the thing that, because what tends to happen with the Predators when they uh, mess up is that they blow themselves and the entire periphery up so nothing can be found of them. But they're not able to do that in this particular scenario because they're pred aliens running around the place. And this also was the film where uh, Sharon shouted, women are not tubes. No, they're not. This is by far the worst of the franchise, Alien vs. Predator Requiem. We actively recommend you don't see it. Correct. It is the most misogynistic of all of them. Uh, then in Predators, you've got these three... Uh, these are the more like weekend dentist hunters who pose grinning next to dead lions and giraffes and things. And they've got superiority complex. Uh, there's also one captive regular Predator, like a classic Predator, who's royally pissed off. But then uh, they, they form an uneasy alliance, which then gets broken almost immediately. And it feels like there's there's been a lot of meat left on the table. In a AVP as well, the original, there, there is an alliance, but it's like last minute, like halfway through act three and it, it just feels like you're not going to explore this ever and then in the predator you get a guy who has fumbled the ball and needs to get his gear back he's kind of like he's trying to stop mr wolf from having to come down and clean up his mess and you also get this insane bruiser who trashes absolutely everyone and seeks autistic juice none of them are particularly interesting and frankly this guy isn't particularly interesting he's really brutal and over the top and seems to really want to get his hands messy as much as possible though that may just be because him just hanging back and using the spear launcher thing would just be kind of boring for him but also noted that he's hunting a lot of different kinds of things that can kill you which leads me to believe although obviously future movies will probably uh, undo this uh, especially as uh, AVP, which is either in canon or not in canon, depending on uh, whether you want it to be or not, because it clashes with Alien Covenant, this might be one of the earliest times that Predators have turned up on our planet. Or it's certainly, they've adjusted the weaponry to be a bit less plasma-based. But, I mean, is there anything else about this guy that, that, that really struck you? What struck me is that this Predator seems to hunt not for pleasure but to relax. It's not something exciting for him, but it's a way to kind of unwind. He can go anywhere on Earth, right? Hmm. There's a lot of, there's a lot more violent places on Earth than the Great Plains in 1719. Hmm. But he starts off going after small predators, small animals like coyotes and things. And then he snake. snakes. Yeah, that's the first thing he gets. Mm. And then he works his way up to the bear. And that's like a, a, a good challenge for him in a sense. And the people are almost afterthoughts to him. He's like, okay, I'll take them out. But they really pose like the bear today for, uh, for a good hunt. And he's not really doing it out of like a desire to prove himself or anything like that. I think for me... So he's the most casual predator we've seen so far. <laughs> I would, Yeah, I would say so. Uh, for me, he kind of came across, and I think, to be fair, one of the, uh, the French trappers actually says this later on. 
he's like a scout. It's almost like he's checking the viability of Earth as a hunting ground. Mm. This is what leads me to think that he's, he's one of the first. Yeah, he's almost picking up samples of local wildlife in mm. a way that's like, okay, so if we come down here to do our sport or, or down here to relax or whatever we are here for... And I think you're right, Name, about the fact that it's this is this is not an area that is teeming with challenge for a predator. Uh, but it does seem to be a case of he's going to take these skulls back and show everybody. Okay, well, if you if you want to go here, this is what you're going to be up against. Oh shit! They got snakes. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> they're like xenomorphs, but really tiny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so that that kind of is is the way he came across to me i think he also in in terms of the design they went out of their way to make him look not he's not primitive certainly not in comparison to uh the, the like the weapons that the trappers have got these rusty flintlocks that they have mm. to they, one of the one of my favorite <laughs> scenes is when three of them shoot at him with three different kinds of of matchlock matchlock type guns and he just stands there looking at them like no 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 you go ahead and reload I'll wait (laughs) (laughs) and it's he's he's not well like you said Alex he is wildly overpowered but he's not nuclear overpowered compared to them he he doesn't have the plasma things like spears and shields and the net they are all way more advanced than the people he's up against but they're not ridiculously outmatching them he hasn't got quite so many homing thingies and launchers as uh, the later ones exactly and his his armor is designed to intentionally look as though it's it's bone constructed Mm. um and even like his his arms that have the the arm pieces that have got electronic devices set Mm. into them the material that they seem to be fashioned of is bone Mm. what you touched on there was the presence of the white man on this particular uh part of the film it's like uh it goes in uh, in stages throughout so you the beginning they're hunting a lion then the predator makes itself known then the french make themselves known then eventually it's naru on her own on her hunt uh, or specifically on her deliberately being hunted in a specific way by the predator. But, uh, yeah, you've got these horrible French trappers uh, who, who come along. And what does that do for the film? So the scene with the buffalo, which is an image that we have seen elsewhere before... Dances with Wolves absolutely had it yeah. as well. It's uh, a, a buffalo that's been completely flayed and had, had its uh, uh, pelt removed, but they've left the rest of the carcass. And then there's carcass after carcass after carcass as they have, as they have committed this horrendous, incredibly wasteful act. Mm. And again, it's kind of blunt because there's the... Uh, Native Americans use every part of the buffalo thing that gets taught to white people just so that they know that this is a massive waste and this is how we do things horribly differently. But in addition we just want the to fur, that, fuck the meat. What it's used for here is to kind of set up the, the trappers as a far greater threat than the predator. Mm. Because ultimately the, thre- the predator has taken a snake. A wolf, a coyote, a bear. Mm. They have not come down here and massacred. Yeah. There's no sport in it. Well, indeed. (laughs) 
Again, I'm not going to confer honor on the predator, but there's just something so preposterous about uh, uh, just mass scale slaughter. Yeah, but I, I cartoonishly like, evil. Yeah, I do like that moment of Naru looking out over the field and just the complete incomprehension. Yeah, because in it's nonsensical. Because what what would do this? Mm. What on earth would do this? But that then creates an unusual situation in any Predator film, which is, yeah, you can kill these guys. Have fun. Indeed. And that's the thing. <laughs> And I do, one thing that I do like actually is that the, by making them French trappers, mm-hmm. by having them all, apart from the uh, Italian translator who can speak to Naru and in, in the English language track speaks to her in English. Mm. And in the, the owner of the legendary flintlock. Yeah. In the Comanche track, I believe he speaks to her in Comanche. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody else around them is speaking French. The French words are not translated in the subtitles, not in the English version, not in the Comanche version. Mm-hmm. The point is that when they speak, it should be not like completely unintelligible, you don't even know this is a language by any means, and anybody who's got a, a, a smattering of French will pick up the odd word or two. Mm-hmm. But the point is that there, there is a fundamental... We're, we're speaking different languages yeah. here that is conveyed by the fact that their words are not translated for us. What I really like about the ultimate version that I made is that when the French speak in French, the subtitles are in French. Yeah. When the Comanche speak only in Comanche and don't translate that directly into English for the sake of uh, cinema audiences, it is written in Comanche. Ah. Mm. Uh, Again, I, I wish I could give this version to everyone. I wish I could just drive up to Disney's front doors and say, I fixed it for you, just put that on there. <clears throat> how, but, how long did it take you to put that together? Hour. Hmm. They could have done that a year ago, and they are now selling the 4K version and the Blu-ray without this as a capability. The, the bit that this is something me. that DVD has been able to do for... 26 years. I can kind of get my head around there not being a decent subtitle set on the the, the extra on Disney+. Plus. They are lazy. I get that. Why is the Comanche language track not on the 4K version? Because it's a bonus. It's an extra. Anyway, sorry. Sorry. I don't want to... I just... Yeah. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> sorry. Uh, but yeah, no, the the, the Predator uh, starts hacking up the French, which led me to think, you know what? Now at some at this point, the Predator has become kind of this anti-hero. There's one, one bit where he picks up a bear trap and just throws it at a guy attached to a chain and it sort of traps, like, clangs his head. And I thought, do you know what would be really cool? Predator versus Nazis. And then I thought back to Sisu oh. and thought, just stick a predator head on that guy, and that's that film. <laughs> Which started making me think, and because everyone started thinking about this around about the time that Prey came out, what would we do if we were given the choice to make a predator film now, and we weren't just doing a retread of the original Predator? What, how would we diversify it? So I asked these folks to think of two films each. I was only able to think of one more because I wanted to think about this properly. And I think the, the, the Sisu, but it's a Predator. Just, just the Nazis one is too good to waste. But Sharon, have you got one? 
Uh, I do. Now, I... Okay. This is going to sound like I've kind of poached it from Predators, but mm. I had forgotten uh. the, the <laughs> elements of Predators that I am about to repeat here. Ah, nuts. Okay. And it is slightly different. Okay. It is slightly different. kind of want to watch Predators so, again. Uh, yeah. That's one of the ones I do recommend. Uh, of like, If you're going to go back and see any of them, I'd say Predators. And the original AVP, Alien vs. Predator, it's stupid and childish, but it's it's fun mm. for me. I, I, I really, I really yeah. like it. Um, so my idea was role reversal. Mm-hmm. Uh, a predator is captured by a group of wealthy weekend warriors who want to hunt the demon who makes trophies of men. Uh-huh. So humans. Yes. Nice. Human dentist warriors who uh, are like, I just, I want to hunt the biggest thing. It's going to tear you apart, dude. Oh, my God. Um, so again, as with AVP, for those of us who enjoyed it, the audience are rooting very solidly for the predator. Mm. Ah, Name. So, for me, the allure of Predator movies is that they're a puzzle. Mm -hmm. You've got um, this unstoppable force with all of these tools. How are you going to tackle that in order to survive? Mm -hmm. So, the year is 1885. You've got a kind of a club or a society of these puzzle solvers in England. And they are excited to go on holiday uh, to a, uh, a a private island of theirs. And they do this every few years where they get together and they just solve a bunch of riddles together. But the predator lands on this island. And so these people are not necessarily uh, violent people themselves. But it's almost like a Lord of the Flies situation when things really start to go downhill. And it's a mystery of what is this thing? It's invisible. But also, how do we defeat it with with our minds? Directed by Ryan Johnson. I thought it, it, I was getting a lot of glass onion vibes (laughs) off of this one. I would love it. I would absolutely love it. Right, my one involves the samurai, and I want to take my current favorite Japanese actor, Hiroyuki Sanada, for this. An aged samurai who has been dishonored, but did not commit seppuku, even though he was uh, given the choice to, and needs to get his honor back, but he's an old samurai, winds up making an uncomfortable allegiance with a predator that has found himself behind enemy lines without any tech or kit and has to get back to his ship and survive. Maybe give that predator something more to work for than just, I wanted to get trophies here. Maybe the predator's got a family. The further away we get from it being a predator, the less this is just a predator movie. But there is a film with Lou Gossett Jr. in it called Enemy Mine. And that's about a human, I believe, played by maybe Dennis Quaid, uh, lands on a planet with an alien. And they're both wounded uh, and they are technically enemies, but because they're the only ones alive around each other, they have to work together in order to survive. And in several instances, either because they're bad losers or because there is a rule, we cannot get discovered. They cannot have access to our tech. Predators are obliged to blow themselves up. In effect, committing seppuku. And this one has failed to do that. So it is very important to this movie that both of these dishonored people, dedicated to their cause but filled with shame, walk free and alive away from these events. 
to be able to make peace with the fact that you can do more good for your own people alive than you can dead. So, the disgraced samurai and the disgraced predator have to work together against a whole load of honorless scumbags and specifically, just, just just bring in the British again, just to just to really mess with this. So, uh, but but yeah, no, mine would be very similar to Tiger's Eye in that it would be a lot of the samurai and the predator having to communicate via mime because they share no common language, and that Sounds is awesome. kind of a little bit. The Predator and Noguchi in one of the first ever Alien vs. Predator novels. She's a, a Japanese lieutenant in a, a space colonial scenario. Uh, and she teams up with Broken Tusk, who's a Predator, who's the last... Because all the rest of them got killed by aliens. And that is sort of replicated in a M AVP with uh, the Scar Predator and Alex. But it, again, it's such a short part of that movie. And it's like that is the meaty chunks of a really good movie about two species actually communicating with each other. Because we've seen the Predator kill loads of things. It would be really neat to root for the Predator and to find out more about the Predator from a writer unafraid to maybe explore a little beyond the dentists. Cool. Anyone else got any others? Uh, I did have one more. Oh, yeah. This is right. Okay, so this is more of a skit than an entire movie. So it's a Predator musical. But bear with me. <laughs> okay. So... I've been dreaming of a true love's kill. <laughs> okay, so uh, we we have our central character, Steve Predator. Steve Predator. Um, I know him well. <laughs> who is is working a white collar job. And his defences deploy every time his boss tries to speak to him about TPS reports or something happens where he, he was expected to do something. It was your turn to pick the kids up from school, Steve, and he forgot. And he starts and immediately trying to set yeah, the bomb off. Exactly. So, like I said, it's, it's more of a bit, but it is... It's a robot chicken sketch. <laughs> it is also a metaphor for an overloaded autonomic... Autonomous? Autonomic nervous system. Mm. So his his external shields, guns, bombs, mm -hmm. etc. are representative of his fight and flight, rest and digest systems being at odds with each other and being wildly at odds with the environment that he finds himself in. Effectively telling the story of the uh, primitive man inside the modern man desperate to get out and emerging as neurosis and anger yes, and uh, exactly. first for no seeming reason anxiety because your boss makes you feel like you're being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger correct that's brilliant i love you so much no mate uh, can I, you top I, it i can leave <laughs> <laughs> please don't we're almost done this one set at san diego comic-con okay <laughs> <laughs> Does it end like Galaxy Quest with everyone going, Woo, this floor show's great! Yeah! <laughs> it's a bunch of Star Trek nerds who have to put what they know about sci-fi tropes to work. They don't know the Predator itself, but they've seen other things like it. Right. And that's the movie. I love it. Nice. This thing is very like a Klingon. I love how both of yours are like people thinking their way around it rather yeah, than being action really Because we've yeah. seen Schwarzenegger, we've seen uh, Amber do it, and uh, we've seen a whole bunch of other people in between. And it's like, maybe, yeah, just the thinking would help. It would also be really cool if the Predator's like... 
No, I don't think you'll be doing that. And they say, like, oh no, we got the Sherlock Holmes of Predators. <laughs> or the Michael, oh, no, the Moriarty of Predators. Indeed. I also, I love the idea that there might be a moment, however brief, where people are assuming that this is a dude in a costume. Mm. There is a guy, we, we have steampunk wow. festivals in Lincoln every mm -hmm. year. And there is, is he a, a steampunk predator? Turns up in a steampunk predator outfit. Does he have a monocle? My God, he looks astounding. <laughs> this <laughs> just predator tentacles all over his head, face mask that just looks terrifying, and then a big steampunk overcoat and boots and. He's tooled out with Bear in mind, folks, this weapons. is at the end of August. This guy must be more sweat than Robocop <laughs> by the agree. end of the day. I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that idea is superb, Name. Well done. So, I mean, the, the actual end point on this is, is what we said before, that Naru manages to... Uh, killed the thing by combining everything that she's learned over the course of the movie. She uses the new pistol she had explained to her by the Italian man to blow the mask off, stealing that because she's already observed how the targeting system goes awry when it isn't on the predator's head. Uh, she also remembers how immobile she was when she by accident fell into a giant pit full of mud and how few choices she had when she was in that mud pit, which allows her to funnel the predator into only doing one thing. But to do that, she has to remove all of his other weapons, including his arm, which I think was an accident. But uh, I, I love the fact that uh, Willow was like, you cut my arm off, but he's just going to carry on. Like, he's not going to get too upset about the fact that he's lost a limb. Just a, a small <laughs> note about the, the quick mud, by the way. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a tool her brother gives her that she did not have before, mm -hmm. and that is the understanding and ability to be able to stand when every instinct says run, mm -hmm. and the that helps her twice. One you're about to go into, but the other one is when she falls into the quick mud, mm -hmm. she does not panic, which is the absolute worst thing you can do in that scenario because the the more you flail, the faster you'll sink. Mm -hmm. She is calm, methodical, and persistent, and that is how she gets out. Mm -hmm. And she continues with the only plan she has because it is a good plan. It does eventually save her. I like the fact that it actually takes four tries rather than three because you're like, one, well, it's definitely not going to work on two. Okay, so with three, oh Power shit, three. it didn't work oh, on three. Oh no, now what? <laughs> <laughs> She also learned through observation and her own learned herbalism, like the herbalism about how the orange flower works, she learned from watching her mother do herbalism. Like even her mother's like, how do you know that at the beginning? Uh, but she works out how that if a person's blood is cool, they cannot be seen by observing this happening with the Italian man. She also observes that the uh, predator doesn't want bait. It wants to kill for sport. It kills the armed and the dangerous. So when she baits the trap, she doesn't bait it with just a screaming helpless dude she makes sure he has access to a gun and she watches exactly how it happens as the predator walks directly into the place she needs him to it never comes off like yes i knew this entire like you know how everyone always talks about how batman is super prepared for everything that doesn't make him a better character him being always on the back foot and things going wrong and him having to improvise suddenly like when she intended to use that spear and then it shrinks back into its uh, pop down size and she's okay right now i have to do something different that makes for a better character mm -hmm. Absolutely. But also the allowing the hunting lion to think that it's hunting her. The traps that all come together, ultimately, like we said at the beginning, 
boil down to the fact that the Predator doesn't even really see her as a threat. So it doesn't see her coming, and at some points it doesn't see her at all. Mm, yeah, and I, I, there's a, a couple of moments in this last segment as well that, that parallel Naru and the Predator. <laughs> so there's a moment when the uh, the predator's repairing his leg where mm-hmm. he, I think her brother stabs him and he, he has to use like a little device to seal the cut uh, and it, it intercuts with Naru putting marigolds if that's what they are on the, the cuts on her leg yeah. um, and also the fact that the predator uses the traps that the French were trying to use on him on them and she uses bits and pieces from the Predator's own uh, toolkit against him. Hmm. Can I ask something about uh, some color theory? Absolutely, go for Please it. Please do. Yeah, what does the uh, the green blood accomplish um, visually for us, the audience, as it goes through the movie? Especially as w- like when she decides to take that as her own face paint. Hmm. So there's an element of that which, for me, kind of represents a blending of a very early instinct to paint with blood, to use face paint that's effectively the the blood of your enemy. But then by virtue of the fact that the Predator's blood is this wild, luminous green, which is not a colour that appears anywhere in nature, signifies a not, a not a transition to technology, necessarily, but it, it underlines Naru's impulses to take what turns up in front of her, even mm. if it is something that she is wildly unfamiliar with, and go, okay, what can I do with that? Mm. Cool. And I also like the fact that when the wolves go after the predator, they have the green blood, blood on their, on their, on their uh, mouth. Muzzle. There is also the, a little neat touch when the uh, wolf bites the predator's leg and then jumps back. It kind of has a look on its face that I'm fairly certain the digital artists wanted to make sure that they put in where it's like... That does not taste like blood. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the effects on this movie are great. Yeah. Like, I tried to pay attention to it watching it for this, but, like, if you're not looking for it, they, they really blend in with the world very well. Mm. They do a lot of practical, which I really appreciate. There oh, are yeah. occasional times that I'm like, well, that's digital. I think you can kind of let them off. Uh, like, if, if COVID ever got in the way, you kind of got to do some digital stuff. But a blend is always way better than just over-relying only on digital. And sometimes a blend can be even better than if you could only have access to practical. Shape of Water is an excellent example of that. Okay, any more on Prey? I guess I should mention that I met the stars of the movie. You did. They're on the alternate <laughs> artwork for this episode that I'm putting out on Twitter as promo- for promotional purposes only. Uh, thank you. Tell, tell us, what was it like? Well, uh, they were at the Comanche Nation Fair last year in 2022. They were doing free meetups. It was wonderful. Uh, I stood in line for maybe 90 minutes uh, to see them. Um, and I got to talk to both of them. They did not charge for, for anything. And I got a photo, I got a signature, I got everything. Uh, and just a couple of weeks beforehand, uh, it was announced that 
Amber Midthunder would be playing Princess Yue in the upcoming Netflix adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh so, my god. Uh, While we were watching yeah. her, I was like, wow, she could have played Katara. And now I'm like, Princess Yue is nowhere near in, in, in it enough. I hope she gets an action <laughs> scene, my god. Yeah, I, I know. So I brought my one of my Blu-rays uh, for her to sign, and I said, could you sign it? That's rough, buddy. Ooh. <laughs> and she did. Nice. <laughs> yeah, she was very nice. They, they both really were. Uh, it was it was a very nice experience uh, that I will remember for a long time. That's lovely. Thank you. Okay, so Name, before we go, do you have something that you'd like to direct the listeners towards? Well, I mentioned before um, the uh, Comanche Nation language uh, page on Facebook. And really, I read a a couple of months ago a book on the history of the the Comanche tribe through the lens of one family. Uh, The title of this book is called Empire of the Summer Moon by S.C. Gwynn. It is a a bit of a, a page turner when it comes to what the Comanches were really like. It is not sugar-coated in any way. Uh, it is paints a very accurate picture of both the crimes of uh, Americans and the crimes of the Comanches. But hmm. it it is very thrilling to see the kind of the, the progress of being the lords of the plains that the Comanches were uh, just the best at, at, at horse riding and horse breeding and then moving into um, one Comanche in particular having to become a political leader uh, with the advent of uh, further American dealings. So yeah, that is a really great book that I recommend if you want to learn more about my tribe. Thank you so, so much. You were honestly our go-to guy no matter what. Okay, so Sharon and I will be back next week with another commissioned show, this one on the James Cameron-produced, Catherine Bigelow-directed, as well as James Cameron-written, barely remembered but really fascinating, dystopian sci-fi Strange Days. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And this This is is as far as you go, no more. This is it. Bring it home.